Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studio. Uh, this month, we have an interview that Eva did with Dr. Manika Balasegram from Guard P on the 2nd of September of this year. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm really, really happy to be here sitting, talking to Manika Balasegaram from GARP. He uh, has agreed to meet us and tell us a little bit more about his journey and GARP's work and mission. Dr. Balasegaram, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, thank you. Hello, my name is Dr. Manika Balasegaram. I'm the executive director of GARP, and I'm delighted to be here uh, today having this conversation. Could you tell us a little bit how did you get to work with AMR? I believe that you started uh, as a physician and you had some work for Medicines and Frontier. But how did you actually get acquainted with more AMR-related work? Yeah, so actually that goes back quite a long way. Um, I did my training in medical school between the years 1991-96 in Nottingham, uh, United Kingdom. And during that period, I did a year of microbiology doing what was called a Bachelor of Medical Sciences, which preceded my medical degree. And I spent a year doing a project in microbiology, actually looking at infections in intensive care units. And at this time, there was actually a growing concern of antimicrobial resistance already. Uh, so I think that this was really my first exposure to it. And it was already something that really interested me. I actually wanted to do clinical microbiology or infectious diseases in the UK. Unfortunately, at that time in the 90s, it wasn't a, I would let's say, a burgeoning speciality. So um, I ended up doing something else, which was emergency medicine. And it was through that route that I ended up eventually um, deciding to you know, work uh, in global health. And actually, the, one of the first things I did was actually work with uh, MedScience from Frontier Doctors Without Borders. That was in 2001. I started working in Uganda. Uh, and in fact, at that time, particularly in the area where I was working in Uganda and in, in the border with what is now South Sudan, there were three infectious disease situations that we were dealing with. Um, one was malaria. The other was uh, a disease called sleeping sickness, human African trypanosomiasis. The third, uh, particularly in southern Sudan, um, where there was a big outbreak, was visceral leishmaniasis. And they're all three are parasitic diseases. But what was actually quite, um, I would say, problematic was the fact that we were seeing drug resistance in all three diseases. So drug-resistant malaria uh, and drug-resistant trypanosomiasis and leishmaniasis and um, resistant to, to the standard treatment at the time. We were seeing quite high rates of clinical failure. And these were diseases that were potentially fatal or actually almost universally fatal in patients who had had diseases, particularly in the case of trypanosomiasis and leishmaniasis, if inadequately treated, the patients would die. This was this was really quite traumatic for me as a, as a, as a physician and, and clearly for our patients, we were really in a difficult um, situation. So in fact, we started at the time conducting clinical research and trying to look at how we could develop better or improved treatments to address this issue. Now, at, at this time as well, we also started to be aware of the issue of antimicrobial use or misuse, particularly for treating bacterial infections. And we were trying to make some efforts doing local stewardship programs in, in clinics and hospitals. You know, access to antimicrobials was also a challenge and where we had very high mortality from um, bacterial infections. And that remains a challenge in, in many settings across the world. So that was really my, back, my introduction into it. And eventually I've spent, you know, the last 20 years working on infectious disease and particularly drug resistance in infectious disease and how one can look at developing better therapeutics to address that problem. That's really been the framework of my career in the last 20 years. I got into Guard P very much from the outset. So probably about six or seven years ago, while I was working, I was still working actually at that time with Medicine Sans Frontier in a different job, more in a kind of policy advocacy job as the director of the Access Campaign, I started getting involved, you know, with the World Health Organization on looking at how to uh, really um, address the issue of drug-resistant infections 
particularly bacterial infections in low middle income um, settings. And so, but and this was something that I think was largely neglected in the broader policy environment. And WHO was really trying to do much more to see how they could address AMR globally, uh, not just in say high income country settings. Uh, and so this was how the concept of, of, of looking at, you know, different models of, of research and development, including working with both public and private sector actors to take a more global health approach was first developed. And this was how the concept of GARP was actually born. So that was about five years ago, six years ago, where the concept of GARP was launched in 2016. I was invited to actually be involved in this right from the beginning. We were initially incubated in an organization called Rights for Neglected Diseases Initiative. And then we eventually launched GARP as a separate entity in 2019. So I really like uh, the GARP tagline. So GARP, for anyone that's not familiar, means the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership. And its tagline is accelerating the development of treatment for drug-resistant infections for every person who needs them, which seems like a very big goal, but it's a goal that I think we all should strive for, especially I think this pandemic has shown us how we cannot escape the global nature of the world we live in today. If a problem exists somewhere, it's going to be shared, it's going to affect us all. So I think putting an effort to really target the, the places where the problem seems to be more accentuated or is being less thought through, I think it's really important. I really like your perspective that you have the experience of working, as you said, in a high-income country and low-income countries. I wonder if, I think probably it's very extensive, but um, if you can pinpoint us what what are the main differences in how low-middle-income countries and high-income countries see the problem of antibiotic resistance? Well, I, one of the commonalities, I'll start with one of the commonalities, in, in, in fact, and one of the common commonalities is, you know, antibiotics are an integral part of healthcare, whether you're in a high-income country and a low-middle-income country setting. In fact, it's so surprising that it's the kind of bread and butter of medicine, whatever type of medicine you're practicing, you know, at least evidence-based medicine. So I think that, that was surprising that, you know, I have a, a very strong affinity for antibiotics because I've seen the, the wonder that they can do uh, and the huge difference in impact they can make to people's lives and, and to patient care and, and medicine as a whole. I think in all those settings, it's almost kind of taken for granted. Why? Because it's part of the infrastructure. You, you wouldn't think about setting up a, a clinic or a hospital without a physical infrastructure and without people. And similarly, you wouldn't think about doing it without antibiotics. But unfortunately, because it's part of the infrastructure, it is kind of taken for granted in all settings. And, and, and you, you see antibiotic misuse in all settings. It's not something that happens in, in certain types of settings. It happens in, in rich countries. It happens in, in resource-limited settings. Uh, that, that's one thing that, that I think is, is very striking. I, I do think that I, I have seen strong efforts in all of those settings, the different settings I've worked in to look at, at improving antimicrobial use. So there is also a recognition in different settings that this is, is important. And that's also quite heartening as a, in a way. However, one important difference is that, you know, if from my experience, and this is obviously and hopefully changing, the infectious disease burden in many countries I've worked in that are more resource limited is, is significantly higher than you would see in many high income countries. In that sense, the need is much, much higher. I've seen so many more children die in you know, low middle income country settings from common infectious diseases. And, and in fact, that, that was extremely demoralizing from a personal and, and professional perspective. Uh, and I think that's often, that, that element is often forgotten, the need is much, much higher in, in the settings where you've got a higher burden of infectious diseases, you've got limited resource, you don't have as, as much access to technologies, to infection prevention control standards, to resources, including human resources. You simply have to do a lot more with a lot less, and that, that pro presents a lot of challenges. But it's, it's why you know, tools like antimicrobials are, 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 in a way, even more important, and it's why they have to be not just protected, but they have to be available. 
mm -hmm. uh, in those settings. They, they, they are incredibly powerful and I would say cost-effective tools for those for, for, for resource-limited settings because they're so needed. So I think that's something that's important. And it brings me to another issue, which I think is really important, that when you look at trying to address the AMR problem, what has been very frustrating to me is that we don't seem to be going to the heart of the problem. Where is this a major issue? Where is it a priority? Where are the greatest needs? Uh, that should be, to me, what should be driving the global response in AMR. And I, think, I still think that's a little bit missing in the equation. Uh, we talk about a lot of things that are means to an end in addressing AMR, but we're, we don't really talk about what should be our priorities and, and where we need to do it and how we need to do it. So I think, I think there's still a lot more that can be done in this area. And, I, and in that sense, I think this is why, you know, the tagline we made for Guard P, looking at that concept, it, it is perhaps a vision and, and something that is aspirational, but it's very important that we develop and make any technology that we're working on, that we're funding, supporting, sponsoring, conducting research on and so on, anything that we're doing, we have to make it available to where it's needed. Uh, and that principle of need, but also equity is extremely important for me in principle and in practice. Mm -hmm. What uh, has been the most challenging part of setting up such a transsectorial and global initiative like GARP? I still see it globally that uh, and I'm going to talk about AMR in general, and I'm not the only one who's going to have this problem in this in the kind of space of AMR. But I think that there is a lot of, of recognition that antimicrobial resistance is a problem. It's a, it's a social, economic, and public health problem. But I think there's still a large degree of kind of talk the talk, but not walking the walk. And that's certainly what I mean is by the fact that I still think it's not fully recognized and understood as a priority, and I don't think there are enough resources going in there. So that has been a major challenge for anyone working in this space. Yes, it gets more attention, but does it actually get the prioritization and resources that it needs? I think no. And I think this has been a major challenge for everyone working in this space. Uh, I think there has been a lot of excitement from people who are working in this over the last years, but to some degree, I would say frustration that, that things are not moving, you know, in the way that they should ideally do and the prioritization is not yet quite there. That's, that's obviously not hard to understand because of all the other competing priorities. And of course, COVID-19 has thrown a, a major span in the works. But I do think that as time goes on, this issue is going to become more and more pressing, like, like climate change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm confident that at some point we, we will have to get our act together and do something. But we have to remember that there are people who are suffering and dying from this problem every day across the world. And, and some of them are extremely vulnerable people that society has an obligation to support and protect. I'm talking, for example, like newborn babies. And, and we see the, the impact of antimicrobial resistance is particularly high in the newborn population. Doesn't seem to be much recognition of how awful that really is when we think about it, that we are letting babies across the world die of something that should be preventable. Um, but that's the reality of it. And unfortunately, that's happening all over the world. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I really hope, I mean, personally, that this pandemic, even though it has put a, a dent on the progress of AMR, I think maybe we can also see it as an opportunity for people to understand the inequalities that we live through yeah. across the world, because it's evident, you know, with access to vaccines and the different uh, cores of the pandemic in different countries. Maybe that leaves a long lasting impression that after, you know, we have gone through this pandemic, we realize that those inequalities might also affect other global health problems like AMR. And we have a more, you know, directed view of where we should be going and what things should be taken in account. At least that's my hope. And I'm a bit of an optimist. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're justified to feel hopeful. I think I'm not that I'm less hopeful, but I'm more cynical, maybe. I, I, I heard this kind of never again sentiment, you know, uh, with HIV AIDS. You know, as I mentioned, I, I was working in Uganda in 2001. We had a 
you know, quite a major problem on HIV AIDS at that time. Antiretrovirals were not yet introduced. And, you know, that was the time when it was starting to be introduced. It made such a big difference. But boy, I mean, we we really, the world really dragged its feet on that. And luckily there were people all over the world who found that unacceptable, particularly, I think, from civil society, who played such a major role, I think, in, in changing that whole mindset and thinking it is not acceptable to be developing these miraculous life-saving treatments and they're not making it accessible to a large you know, majority of the world's population who need it the most. So, yeah, you would think we would have learned our lesson and yeah, well, got to it's act together again. There was a major global response to look at, you know, how to improve access to treatments on HIV, TB, malaria, the big three. You had, you know, big institutions and funding mechanisms being set up and so on. So, yeah, you would have thought, yeah, we've really learned our lesson then. But, you know, apparently not. In my entire career on working on access to medicines over the last 20 years, there have been people all over, particularly from civil society, who've been arguing the case that, you can't divorce innovation and access. You know, you can't just think, yes, we need to bring these, these wonderful new innovations on and not think about what's your strategy on access. Mm-hmm. But I think, and without being too critical, because it's easy with a retrospectoscope, but I think that's pretty much what we did with COVID-19. We, a uh, big miracle, lots of new vaccines developed in record time, and then we kind of dropped the ball on access, arguably. Well, actually, we did, in my opinion. I think the world is starting to get its act together uh, on this, but I, it's a source of a great deal of frustration that I was hearing many of the same arguments being repeated again that were had 15, 20 years ago. Um, so I, I am a little bit cynical about this, although I think it's, you know, this isn't the first example of where we've seen inequity. Mm-hmm. It's just another example in the last 20, 30 years where you have an important global health situation or even crisis and you have the problem of inequity. So I think this is a fundamental problem. And I think, you know, in global health, it's absolutely necessary that, you know, organizations bake in, like our people, so we have to bake in access if we are even remotely connected with supporting or driving or conducting research and development, you have to make in access. And it's just ethics to me, pure ethics, mm-hmm. that one has to think about this. Yeah, there has to be a balance. It doesn't matter how many more drugs we bring or we develop or we find if we are not able to bring them to the people that actually needs them, right? Like, what's the point? Also, with the stewardship, the same. There's no point to make new drugs if we don't control how we use them, if we don't really save them for when we need them. And for the people that need them, we are going to end up in the same vicious circle that we've been over the past decades, where we are not really taking care of the infrastructure that antibiotics actually are for us. When we talk about access... Maybe this is a bit of a loaded question, but who do you think or which institutions do you think should have the responsibility of working and ensuring that this access is available? I mean, I I think that's, uh, you know, it's one of those problems where unfortunately the responsibility is across the board. So then, you know, you don't really have anyone who leads on that, right? So, you know, it's kind of, it's passed along, you know, part of the parcel. I, I think as a fundamental basis, you know, I think governments have a responsibility to their population. I'm just going to say that off the bat. It's a bit of an old-fashioned way of thinking, perhaps, but I do actually think governments have a responsibility to safeguard the health and security of their population. And I think antibiotics is part of, you know, now we talk about health security, people start to grasp that. But, you know, I see that more as fundamental responsibility. Mm -hmm. I I do think that, on the other hand as well, I do think the private sector have an important role to play because they are often the ones who are driving the innovation. They are often looking and have the the position of responsibility of ensuring access. They often have the ones that can make the decision to actually support and enhance access. And there are companies who are actually doing this. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it requires, you know, um, a recognition that this just can't be done you know, out of charity. I mean, I think, you know, that is not a sustainable way um, for anybody. But it also has to be recognized that there is a responsibility as well. So it, it works both ways. I think governments have that responsibility. And, and, and I think the private sector actors who stand to benefit from, you know, developing these technologies have a responsibility. Now, of course, in the antibiotic space, there's an additional problem, which is 
there is a, a, a market failure, particularly for new antibiotics. But we also have to remember that even for old antibiotics, there are issues around lack of access and problems, shortages and lack of supply and so on. So I think these are all issues that have to be dealt with by um, multiple different actors. But uh, I do also think that in the global health space, groups who are working on the space have to build it in or bake it in to their strategies. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just flag up an example. I think if you are a company, of course, you now know that you companies recognize that they have a responsibility, whether they fulfill or not, that responsibility is another issue. But I think most companies know they have a responsibility. But I would say that if you're an academic group conducting research, you need to accept that, that you also have that responsibility, even if you can't play a primary or driving role, you have a responsibility to bake in a strategy of how you're going to deal with access or or and you know at least find ways to work with others to enhance access. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I know not everyone will share that view, but that's my perspective. And having done, I would say, investigator-led research, it's the way I've been thinking about this right from the outset. And I've been lucky that I've worked with organizations like Doctors Without Borders, like the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, and now like Guard P, and also have the 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 luck to collaborate with organizations like like WHO who take access extremely seriously and see this as a as a core part of their mission. Mm-hmm. And so that has really helped to embed that idea into my head. Yeah, I think that more and more people are thinking about that. Uh, one example that comes to mind right now, which I think it might be a way to, to work it out, is um, funders that they actually require to have an access and a stewardship plan when they apply for the grants. So you actually have to have... At yeah. least an idea. And I also like in the case of Carvex, I believe they have a group of people that would guide the people from the companies to create these access and stewardship plans. Because obviously what I also think is might be a limitation is is the is the knowledge, right? The company people know how to make whatever it is that they're doing, but they don't know so much about the social part of access and yeah. the governmental part of yeah. access, which I think yeah maybe it's like overwhelming for them you know like the next steps which is trying to get market authorization and commercialization and then the next it's how do we bring this to the people so i think it's very nice if we have uh, infrastructure or rather uh, organizations that are able to help all these companies along the way so they can actually start thinking about this from the very beginning yeah and those are very good you know, points that you flagged up. I'll, I'll deal with them now, you know, one by one. On the first issue around that you've rightfully brought up around funders who are putting money for research, I think that is is really important. I mean, we've seen that shift with terms like, you know, aspects like publication. A lot of funders are saying they want, you know, the outputs to be published and published in, say, open access, where the articles would be accessible other researchers including researchers who may not have a lot of resources and i think that's a good thing but that's only one step and i think the next step of thinking about access to the benefits of the research not just to the knowledge is also important and i do think that funders particularly funders who are putting money on research and development programs this is just a must and of course there are different things that one can ask for but having that at least in the framework of the thinking is, is extremely important. You know, and there are, you know, research funders like the Wellcome Trust who have already, you know, started to think about this and have done quite a lot of work along these, these lines. Carbex is also a good example of where it's a, it's a very interesting initiative, lots of funders coming together, quite, quite a, a reasonable chunk of money being put behind it. And, you know, they could simply have just done what they're doing and saying, yeah, we make calls, we, you know, give out grants, but it wasn't good enough for Carbex to do this. I think it's good that they actually said, no, we need to think about what happens beyond that, even though they are stopping at, at phase one. So I think, you know, they've gone beyond their remit in that sense to say, if we want to make sure that these technologies get to people, we've got to start baking in access and, and that's why I think it's useful because doing this, this stewardship and access plans that Carvex have done, and, and please have a look at their website if you don't know much about this, is, is an important step to start that discussion with companies and start framing at least a strategy of what one can think of. Now, sure, you can say it's just a paper plan, but at least it's something to start that process 
After that, I do think it's important that funders who continue to support those projects and entities like Garpi who are working more on the downstream part then actually get stuck in and start finding ways to translate that into a reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what we're doing in Garpi. Now we are actually not just looking and saying, okay, how, how can we look at you know, the clinical development process? We're also looking at how clinical development into access and what are the practical things that we can start doing with our partners, particularly our private sector partners, but also government, public partners on translating these ideas and concepts and plans into, into a reality. That's, of course, a big challenge because it's where the rubber hits the road. It's where one has to recognize, you know, limitation of resources, you know, the, the, the reality of, of getting one's hand dirty and all of this. But one has to be aspirational and, and say, we're going to try and do it, the, the, you know, the, the best we can do here and, and actually try and deliver for patients globally. But I want to go back to the point that you made earlier, which is when you alluded to COVID-19 and you said, well, you know, the world understands now it doesn't make sense to deal with the problem in one part and not, you know, in the rest of the world, because everybody's going to pay the price for that at the end. Right. And these it's just the dynamics of how infectious diseases work. And if we let the problem in a way remain unchecked in, in you know, actually in the majority of the world, A, we're not doing our job, but B, we put a risk on those minority of places where we are doing something. So I think that concept of global health security is now understood. We have a practical example where it's all played out in an unfortunately in a fairly disastrous way. And I think everyone recognizes that we need to have a a coherent global strategy, including a global access plan. Mm-hmm. We're paving the, the beginning of the path, so to speak. I actually wanted to ask you if you can tell us a little bit more about some current projects at GARP, a little bit more in detail. Like, what is it that you guys are working on right now? One of the projects that I think is probably closest to my heart and, and most important is, is the project we're doing on neonatal sepsis. And we're currently, we've just finished a very important phase where we've conducted an early stage I would say a pharmacokinetic trial on, on, a, on a drug called phosphomycin. We've done a big global observational study, you know, in, in many, many different countries, both low, middle income and high income settings. Now we're, we're really developing a new project and a protocol on uh, a fairly kind of innovative study where we're looking to evaluate multiple different treatments for the management of neonatal sepsis and adapting it to different contexts and settings where we will be conducting this trial. And it will include, you know, current standard of care, as well as combinations of existing antibiotics that we will will basically test and see how we can fit this into to really develop, you know, alternative treatments for neonatal sepsis, including where necessary alternative empiric treatments to replace the current standard of care, particularly, I would say, waves of penicillin and, and, and aminoglycoside. So I think recognizing that, this, that there's increasing levels of resistance to the standard of care, and this is becoming redundant in potentially redundant in many parts of the world, there's some sense of urgency. Now, this is a very ambitious project to undertake. And there are very, very few people who would be willing to undertake this project. And luckily, we have got together with a few partners across the world, you know, different hospitals and, and clinicians who are willing to do this, as well as organizations who have been committed towards this. But, you know, we've been working in countries across the world, you know, for instance, in South Africa uh, and India, where we've got strong commitment from the medical research councils there, who have also been very solid partners in this. And that's, it, it, for me, it's, it's really heartening to see that, you know, it's been possible to build these kind of global collaborations, doing, conducting concrete projects in a population with incredibly high need, but extremely neglected and where very few people would dare to go. And, and it, it, is not, it is not an easy kind of project to take, especially for a new organization like Garpi, but it's something that I feel is of tremendous importance. To finish, we've added a new program called the Serious Bacterial Infection Program. And we've actually now launched a partnership with, with another company called Venetorix. And that is on a drug called Cefepine Tanibobactam for really targeting gram-negative infections. And this is also in phase three, and it's it will be a very important project. And again, we are also looking at how we can bring these, this treatment available in, in high burden countries where it's urgently needed you know, so, as, as soon as possible. So 
th this project is to us a, a kind of the opening of a new program that we call the Serious Bacterial Infection Program. We hope to bring another project on board in, in you know, over the course of the next months. And I think it's a reflection on the kind of growing portfolio of work that, that God please undertaken. I'm proud to say that, you know, we've really, what has been a real joy is that the partners that we are now working with and seeing the level of commitment, both from public and private sector actors on, on this issue has been, has been really heartening. It, it shows that there are people who are really willing to spend their life effort, professional efforts on, on this issue, often without any clear, obvious reward in sight. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we do need to, to recognize that across the world, people are really working hard to address this problem. Yeah, definitely. I have to say that I, because you mentioned, of course, all the work you are doing with uh, development and access as well. But I think you guys are doing a wonderful job of bringing people together and also providing incredible amount of knowledge for everyone out there that is either coming into this area or developing within the area. And I just, it's it's a great work that you guys have done in relatively short time and it's so much output and you guys are out there everywhere. When I came into this area, you guys were almost the first organization that I learned from and that I have been growing with. Um, I came in into AMR around 2018. So you guys are doing a great, great service, I think, to everyone in the in the field. And I wanted to ask you, what are the hopes and dreams if we are thinking about optimistically for GARPI? So imagine a world where things are getting better, where, you know, there is a global response up to the standards that we're hoping for. Where do you see GARPI fitting in in that landscape? Yeah, well, <laughs> if you really ask me a question like that, my my hope is that eventually we won't need an organization <laughs> like Garpi. You know? That that would really be my aspiration. You know, we we've set ourselves up for the long term. We're realists. We know. I I want to to just you know also reassure everybody. You know, we have a long term view on this issue. This is not an issue that's going to go away. The nature of of life, biology, evolution means the bacterial will continue to evolve and change and adapt. And so we see this as a, as a long-term mission and somebody has to take, be stuck in it and take a long-term view on this. And that's what we're here for. And that's why we do take, you know, our R&D projects are not short-term, you know, for tomorrow. There are things that we can have deliverables in the next few years, but we will need to, to take a long-term view. We want to look at access, use, stewardship, bring on new projects and evolve the portfolio and so on. So I think that's, one thing I want to kind of make clear, but on the other hand, as an aspiration, yeah, we would like to see the, a world where, you know, it wouldn't be necessary to have organizations like GARP or CARBEX and so on. Having said that, till that day comes, we have to work hard and we have to work together. This is too big a problem as for, for one actor or sector to solve. And it's really important that I think we, we build this level of solidarity within the AMR community, but more globally share that with, with you know, broader stakeholders and society at large. And this is an issue that belongs to society at the end of the day. Um, and we have a role to play in it. That, that's the way we see it. Mm -hmm. We all have a role to play. That's a, it's a beautiful sentiment that I hope more and more people, you know, go on board with, and that we all have a little bit to to do, and we can help somehow. Especially everyone that is working in the AMR area, being as vast as it is and as broad as cross sectorial, I think that everyone with the knowledge they have, they will be able to help the AMR problem. So hop on board and come to the issue here. I think we're almost done, we're out of time, but I wanted to ask you before we uh, sign off, if there is anything in particular that you would like to tell our audience, we are listened all across the world uh, by people that are already interested in AMR, they have some knowledge, so the floor is yours if you want to tell them anything. Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, for all those kind of young uh, researchers, public health uh, people, you know, clinicians, doctors, nurses, whatever, Whoever's listening to this, this, you know, if you're interested to work in this area and in the field of infectious diseases, please do. We need, you know, committed, passionate individuals. It was, it's only a heartbeat since I left medical school and I'm already hit 50, hitting 50, you know, so my time will come where I will leave the scene. And, and we need, you know, young, committed, 
um, you know, researchers, activists, clinicians, public health specialists, you know, policymakers working in the space. So please, please, this is a, a, a really important space to work in. It's really interesting and, and it will bring you a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy in your professional career. But, you know, most importantly, they, there's a real urgent need on this. So that's the only thing I would say you know, and, and if it's been your dream, follow your dream. I'm glad to say I ended up doing that in spite of you know, my setbacks I had in my early career. But uh, there, there will be a lot of people out there who will be willing to help. So that, that's the only message I can, I can say. Yeah. And thank you for listening. That's great. Thank you so much, Monica, for being with us. It's been lovely to hear your story and Garpit's mission. And might be aspirational, might be big goals, but I think if we... Like people say, if you don't shoot for the stars, you are never going to get anywhere, right? So yeah, let's just think true. that it is feasible and that we might might get there someday. Thank you so much again, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you and bye-bye. Welcome back, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Monica. And I'm now curious to know, Jenny, what did you think of the interview? What are the highlights for you? Well, all in all, I thought it was a great interview. I honestly don't feel like there's too much I can add to it. You guys covered a lot of the bases and you asked a lot of the questions I would have asked. But there are a few things that came to mind that I just kind of wanted to focus on. I thought it was really interesting that he had a parasitology entrance to the AMR world because that's not really what we often talk about or what people think about when they think of drug resistance or lay people maybe think about when they think of drug resistance. But it's very interesting that he brought up, you know, where he was working, the main, three main infectious diseases were parasite-borne mm-hmm. and had resistance issues. Mm-hmm. And I mean, coming from the field, I know that there's issues with, you know, anti-malarial drugs and that sort of thing. But I personally tend to kind of forget about it, especially we talk about here, we, we focus on antibiotics and less on antivirals, antifungals, and even less on antiparasitics. <laughs> So it's it was a I think it's a healthy way to come at it that come from a different side mm-hmm. because it kind of keeps that fresh in your mind. I kind of got the feeling from the interview that back in the days the problem of drug resistance was better understood by people working in these settings and with these parasitic diseases perhaps than people working with bacterial diseases. I am not sure if it's just the lay talk about it what has changed and the doctors yeah. were actually very aware both in both sides parasitic diseases and bacterial diseases or if it's something that because the availability of different drugs wasn't really it hasn't really sinked in back then and mm-hmm. maybe for parasitic diseases maybe the range of possible treatments was a little bit more restricted so if you got resistant to the the general treatment option then you had no other options, you know, then you would yeah. see people dying from those infections. Uh, whereas in the bacterial realm, you know, you still had some options and you would still use different drugs. Yeah. And it could definitely be, I mean, as you spoke of, both of you in the interview, it's a matter of resources and who's where the burden lies. The burden of a lot of these parasitic diseases lies in parts of the world that have less resources, less access and this sort of thing, which also means that there's probably less options and that sort of thing. And I think also in the case for malaria, I mean, in parts of the world, it's so almost normalized. And in other parts of the world, it's like where we live, it's completely unheard of that somebody would get malaria where yeah, we are, exactly. of course. But I remember sp- uh, speaking to a colleague of ours about like, I was telling her about this teacher that I had that, oh, he got malaria six times because he kept traveling with research. And she's like, yeah, no, I've had malaria twice. And it just blew my mind. I was like, for some reason, it never crossed my mind that somebody would that I knew would have had malaria before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's maybe also it's kind of been normalized in some ways. So there's not the same push. Well, we've gotten to the point where we've a lot of progress has been made in antibacterials and that sort of thing. And we expect it to be that way. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of t- start taking steps back, then there's more pushback. Mm-hmm. While some of these diseases have been endemic in different parts of the world, then it's no longer... Like there, there's not the same hesitancy when you start seeing resistance. Yeah. At least in the, I'd say, wealthier part of the world where maybe more resources could be put on the problem. Mm-hmm. And here we come to, you know, the highlight or the key point of our conversations, which was access. You know, he yeah. was, it was very clear all throughout the interview, you know, what we really need to be providing is access to the these antimicrobials 
everywhere and for the people that need it the most, which mm. I really like, you know, their approach. I think I mentioned it, you know, this needs based research and interventions. And I'm very happy to see that there is an organization that is really looking into this and that is not shying away from working on the difficult things just mm -hmm. because they are difficult, but they are deciding to work on them long-term prospects because they are some things that are needed. And yeah. they are needed by the people that are underserved and they are most at risk of these things, you know. And that's beautiful. It's hard, but, you know, it's, it's as he says, aspirational, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, he brought up a good point with, you know, we have the proof of failure in the system with the COVID vaccine distribution now. Like when, when a crisis comes, it's not fair the distribution, it's not going to who needs it the most. But like you said, also, I mean, I was very impressed. And I, I didn't really realize this. I've, of course, heard of Guard P before working in our field. I didn't realize exactly the projects they were working on. They really didn't shy away from starting with the hard stuff. They didn't go for like a low, low ball, easy start. They are really embracing the difficult questions head on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very impressive, very ambitious for a new organization, but they seem to be doing incredibly well with mm -hmm. that as well. Finding people that are engaged and are willing to put in time and effort into a difficult process. I think it's the overall, I don't know, I think it's a mix of the spirit of the organization, the people working there, the connections that they can make. You know, like if you're going to target something so difficult, you need to have an environment where people are motivated to work in hard stuff, you know, and I feel like yeah. that's that's something that transpires from Garpi, you know, like I think everybody wants to kind of give the little thing because it's it's kind of bringing people together and it's this feeling of being uh, surrounded by people that have the same goals and they want to help, you know, in the same way. So it feels mm -hmm. like, you know, part of the success, I would say, is that they make people want to work on these things and collaborate. Yeah, and like, it's this environment of like, we can do this together. So it's a little bit of yeah. the work, but also the the feeling that people can get by being part of something like this, I feel like. I get the feeling that they're really going out and looking for the right people in the right place. And they're finding that maybe people have been a bit disheartened or found difficulties, but they're they're like relight resparking this fire exactly. in people and kind of giving them like new hope. Yeah. I, I mean it's a little bit weird. It sounds a little bit like over exaggerated, but I get that impression from how he was speaking about how difficult different parts of the world have found this. They're like, this is a huge problem. But it's a massive, difficult thing to start and work on it. But it sounded like they've really gotten people engaged. And I mean, that's like the step one basic thing. If you want to make a change, you've got to get people motivated and into it and willing to work even harder than they already are, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's just it seems very hopeful start. Yeah. From what I've understood, they've done a lot of really good work so far. And I don't think there's any reason to expect anything else in the future. And I also, I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people listening to us right now already know about GARP, but I really, really want to emphasize that they have something for everybody. They have so much knowledge in their website, in their activities, in their seminars, webinars, you know, there yeah. is a little bit for everyone. And I think it's worth that we really highlight how good of a work they're doing on also educating people, not only bringing people together to work with them in their mm. projects but also of the overall AMR community they are providing so much value so if you maybe are not so familiar with them and what they're doing I would recommend to go into their website sign up to their newsletter because you're going to get a lot of content and a lot of good good knowledge from the source as well yeah absolutely it's a it's an amazing resource if you need more information or even if you don't think you need more information, you're going to find more information <laughs> than you had before. <laughs> I mean, to keep updated as well, they are like yeah. really, really up to the up to the date on things and pro providing the the latest things. Yeah. Um, I think with that we can move on to the news. We have two items this time. Yes. Some a little bit related with what we talk, but also a little bit of like hardcore science, which I really like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. See you in the news, guys. See you. Welcome back. Uh, today, as Ava said, we have two news pieces, and we wanted to start with one that kind of emphasizes something that was mentioned in Ava's interview with Dr. Belisegram, focusing on at-risk patient groups, in a sense. And this one is about cancer patients in particular. So it's a nice kind of review slash perspective piece 
in uh, the journal CA Cancer, a cancer journal for clinicians, which is part of the American Cancer Society journals. It's called Antibiotic Resistance in the Patient with Cancer, Escalating Challenges and Paths Forward. And among the authors is a well-recognized name for us by this point, uh, Dr. Kevin Ederson. But yeah, it's Eva, what did you think about this piece? I, I really enjoy reading this because, as you said, it's a, it's a good mixture of looking at previously published data, summarizing it, putting it together, and also suggesting some pathways and changes that can happen to protect those at most risks. And in this case, we're talking about cancer patients, as you were mentioning. Mm. The paper in starts by, you know, talking about reality, which is cancer patients are one of the patient populations that are most at risk of getting infections and therefore also being affected by drug-resistant infections. And not only that, I mean, they have an increased risk of hospital-associated infections, which means, like, it's not just about the number of infections. They are categorically at a higher risk of getting specifically resistant infections. Mm -hmm. And you have to balance that with the fact that there are also patients that use large amounts of antibiotics. So it's a very delicate ethical balance of like, how do you treat this population the best for everybody while preserving the needs of the individual? But I think they did a very good job. It's, it's I mean, if you have a background in AMR research, it, a lot of it is stuff you might already know. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a lot of numbers, a lot of data in there that was very interesting. Among other things, I wanted to mention a few specific numbers that stu stood out to us, that a patient with cancer has a three times higher risk of dying from a fatal infection than a patient without cancer, and that infections played a role in the cause of death in approximately 50% of patients with cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, even though these infections that often are drug resistant aren't on the death certificate, they mm -hmm. definitely played a role. And this came into something that we spoke about, which is it's hard sometimes to say the numbers of how many people died of something because there are many contributing factors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a patient passes away uh, during cancer treatment of an infection, did they die of the infection or did they die of the cancer? It's it's a bit complicated to quantify. So I think probably the numbers that are presenting somehow might be skewed and even be an under-representation of the real numbers out there exactly. in the clinics. I mean, personally, I think the numbers should be contributed to both. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was one one life lost, but there were two causes yeah, in many exactly. cases. And it's the same with the COVID pandemic now. Mm -hmm. I mean, many things can contribute. Uh, but speaking also of the COVID pandemic, I think we're in a situation where we can have, many more people can have an understanding of what it would feel like to be living through cancer treatment where you're immunocompromised. Because in those cases, I mean, these are people that have maybe had to isolate themselves from friends and family for months, years at a time for their own health and in their own fear while they're going through something very difficult in their lives. Mm -hmm. And we think about this now, I know it's been tough on all of us the last almost two years, the last year and a half yeah. or two years, what are we going to call it now? I think it's reasonable to feel like maybe we can have a better understanding for this patient group and be more sympathetic and try to help reduce the infection burden mm -hmm. for them in whatever way we can. Yeah. Likewise, I think it's important, you know, now that people have gone through this pandemic, we are aware of how easy it is to get infections, how yeah. also relatively easy it is to try to prevent infections. You know, I think people coming into, you know, there's going to be people that are going to have cancer in the future. And yeah. in the paper, they are pointing out how important it is to have proper practices when it comes to avoiding infections for these patients. So I think now mm -hmm. we have a little bit of a point of reference of how important it is to actually prevent an infection and how best we can isolate and we can, you know, use masks and mm. do all these practices. I think it's important that, you know, there's more and more information for these patients coming into cancer treatment about how important this is and uh, how it's related to the potential threat of having an infection and having a resistant infection. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, personally, I'm going to keep using this paper for all the all the data in it, it's it's very well collected, curated. It's easy to follow, and it's very well written. So it reads really nicely. Yeah, some of these numbers are things I've been like looking for in conversations with other people about the effect of antibiotic resistance. I'm like, wow, it's all in one paper now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I can find everything. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So it's an open access article, and uh, yeah, I highly recommend it for anyone who wants a little bit more data or maybe wants a resource to help when speaking with somebody else about 
AMR in cancer patients and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they also provide very nice, you know, ideas of how to move forward as well and how important, you know, stewardship should also be and preventing the infections. And, you know, as you say, it's a very hard balance for doctors in the hospitals mm -hmm. to think about the risk that the patient is at having an infection, but also the risk that we're putting the population at by using a lot of antibiotics as prophylactics in this Yeah. Uh, cohort of, of patients in the clinics. So I think everyone working out there as a health professional should start thinking about this. This is something that it that is happening every day in the clinics. Cancer is one of the leading causes of death across the world and it's not expected to be reduced so much as the populations are getting older and the risk of getting cancer is uh, stronger. Uh, this yeah. paired with the increase in antibiotic resistance all around I think it's something that they have to have in the front of their minds all the time when they're working with these patients as well. So it's a really, really great resource for both layman people, but also, you know, professionals working on the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I think with that, we can move on to our second paper of the day, which is something I really enjoy talking about, which is bacteria and bacterial genomes and bacterial evolution and yeah. new new potential methods for killing bacteria as well. So this article was published on Scientific Reports Journal, which is part of the Nature Publishing House on 26th of August of this year. And it has as a title, Bacterial Resistance to CRISPR-Cas Antimicrobials. This paper caught my attention I have to admit first, because I didn't know that they were CRISPR-Cas antimicrobials. Um, so I was like, oh, CRISPR-Cas antimicrobials, this is interesting, and bacterial resistance. Okay, <laughs> let's see what this is about. And then I was uh, happily surprised to see that this is actually a paper by a um, relatively close colleague of ours, uh, Morten Sommer, who works in Denmark, and we have some friends that have been working in his group as well. Yeah, this is an interesting topic to talk about. First and foremost, because I think it's cool to talk about the potential for using CRISPR-Cas as an antimicrobial. I think many of you out there maybe have heard of CRISPR-Cas as a revolutionary genomic editing tool that is being currently used for trying to treat diseases via gene therapy. So the CRISPR-Cas system allows us to make very, very particular changes in the genome of particular cells. It's a very targeted mechanism. It was actually first discovered the mechanism, I have to say, by a <laughs> Spanish researcher, Francis Mojica from the University of Alicante. And it was found in archaea, actually not even in bacteria. So this is a system that the bacteria have to prevent infections by viruses, basically. And yeah. the way that it works is that you have a machinery, let's just say like that in very simple terms, <laughs> that is able to recognize particular sequences in the genome. And when it recognizes the sequence, it has a protein, it has one of the parts of this machinery that is going to cut at the sequence, basically. And it can work both in DNA or in RNA. So there are uh, parts of the system that can be cut in DNA or RNA independently. But the one that a lot of people have heard of, which is CRISPR-Cas9, it actually targets DNA cutting specifically. Mm -hmm. It's an endonuclease that cuts DNA. So basically the idea here for the antimicrobials is the same. It's like we have this system, we are able to engineer it. So the system cuts in particular sites of particular bacterial strains. Yeah. This has a really huge potential to have very, very targeted therapy, which is something that we keep talking about when we're using antibacterials, antimicrobials. You know, we want to be as specific as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't think it can get more specific than CRISPR-Cas because it's specifically engineered to target one sequence. I think yeah. bacteriophages are, are another option for a very targeted killing of bacteria. But this has the potential, if it works, to be super, super narrow uh, affecting. Mm -hmm. And it could even theoretically target not just a specific bacteria, but it could target specifically resistant bacteria. Mm -hmm. So target, say, a resistance gene or something like that as a cutting site is, is part of the theoretical idea behind it, is that it wouldn't necessarily just have to kill all of the bacteria, even of that type. It's just basically preventing the selection of resistant bacteria by killing those exactly. and leaving 
current functioning treatment to kill the rest. Yeah. So it's it's potentially, it's really cool. It's a really, really cool system. If you really like, you yeah. know, bacterial physiology and bacterial evolution, this is beautiful. But we should also add that it's not, it hasn't gone to any like actual clinical testing or anything like that. This is a very, it's still in a very theoretical stage, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of basic science work around this, looking at, okay, how would this work? What are the problems? What are the possibilities? Can we make it more efficient? Is there exactly. resistant? What kind of resistant do we get to these systems, yeah. uh, et cetera? So this is like the stage we're at right now, yeah. is trying to understand more how it could work rather than actually putting it into practice. Yeah. So what they basically went about is like, okay, let's try to see if we can see is the killing efficiency of this system correlated to anything we can measure. Like for example, where the target in the genome is in the bacterial chromosome, how many targets do we have in the bacterial chromosome? Are they in particular kind of genes or are in another regions of the chromosome? And it didn't really find any correlations with that. But what they're actually trying to see is if they can find any correlations with the emergence of resistance to this particular uh, system, and if they can also understand how this resistance works. Yeah. So what they found is that if you have more targets on the chromosome than just one target, you actually reduce the emergence of resistance. This is kind of easily understood because if you have just one target in the chromosome, if you have a mutation in that target that doesn't allow the system to work anymore, you already get resistant to that. Whereas if you have different targets at the same time in the chromosome, then you will have to pick up independent mutations in all those targets at the same time in order to inactivate the system. Yeah, it comes down to like a numbers chance situation. I mean, you're you're decreasing the possibility of these things happening at the same time at the right frequency. So once you reduce, you know, the possibilities of getting changes in the chromosome that will inactivate the system of the CRISPR-Cas working, killing the bacteria, then they found that you are basically reduced to changes in the system itself Yeah. to reduce the killing. So basically inactivating the system, which is actually encoded in an extra piece of DNA that is not part of the bacteria. So basically what they do is to have the system in an extra piece of DNA that they introduce in the bacteria they want to kill, and then they express it and they count how many bacteria are they actually kill. So most of the changes that they found in this study that led to resistance were associated with changes in the actual protein doing the cutting. So not like the actual target was being changed, but the actual thing that's doing the changing, <laughs> the, the cutting <laughs> yeah. was being changed. And they also saw that expression, so like how much of this is expressed, how much of this cutting protein is expressed, had a big effect as well yeah. on the, how, how well the killing went. So they look at it from a different a couple of different points in this paper and... Uh, I think it's worth mentioning this is, you know, one piece in a lot of work that's going on. This is a good paper to just show like how science works. It's a piece contributing to a field of work. It's getting some data that uh, fits in well with previous publications, but also some that maybe don't fit that well with things that have been found before, which they talk about, you know, maybe differences in methodology and that sort of thing. So it's as looking at how basic science works when this is even relatively applied basic science, they're looking at how can this it's a lot of just information gathering and trying to tie together work from different people and make some progress, identify challenges or future things to think about and considerations and that sort of thing. So I think this is a good paper to show just like how this process moves forward. Yeah, exactly. And not to forget that, you know, this is something that is also done with other kind of antimicrobials, antibacterials. You know, you need to understand how how is it working? Can we make it more effective? What kind of resistance are we getting? Is there a way to prevent this resistance from happening? For example, yeah. changing from having one target only to having multiple targets in the chromosome, it showed to have a, a less emergence of resistance as well. Mm-hmm. So this is, yeah, it's pure, you know, basic science and the process of how we get to actually make something that can serve and can work as we intended it to. Because nothing really is kind of like working right off the bat, especially now that these low-hanging fruits of things that can actually help us killing bacteria right off the bat are basically used and and not available anymore. So everything that is left over, everything that we have to develop has to go through extensive testing, extensive optimization and trying to find the best way. So they do a very good work of kind of suggesting what kind of optimizations could be done to the system in order to make it work in a more effective way. It's an open access paper. So if anybody wants to look more into the specifics, we've kind of glossed over a lot of the specifics Mm -hmm. of their work. But it's it's an interesting read and take a look at it if you want more details. 
details. I'm, I'm happy that the, it's a thing that we're looking into. It might not actually end up being anything, but maybe we can actually find a specific type of, of thing that it would work for, you know, by understanding the system. Maybe it takes 10 things to look at, but hopefully one of them works. I mean, you've got to keep trying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And with this, I think we're done for this month of October. We have to say that the next month, November, is, as you might know, maybe, is the World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. So we are working to bring you something a little bit special for that particular week, which is focusing on awareness this year. So we are not going to come out with a regular episode at the beginning of November. So just wait for our update uh, during the Antimicrobial Awareness Week. And then we'll see you back with a regular episode for the December month. Yes. Hope to see you back with us for this special Awareness Week and for December. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.